You may be seated. And as you are seated, I want to have a passage of scripture that will be the passage that I'm actually preaching on tonight. I thought it might be nice for us to read this passage together. It's a passage that picks up right after the passage that I had preached on just this last Sunday. And you'll recall that that what's happened in that passage is Jesus has come to Nazareth. And he has opened up the scroll of Isaiah in the synagogue on the Sabbath and read from it. And he has read a passage that's ascribed to the Messiah. And he said that, I tell you that this day, this passage has been fulfilled in your hearing. And the people were amazed, we're told, and they exclaimed, is this not Joseph's son? That's where we pick up in Luke 4, 22 through 30. I'm going to read from the ESV. We have that printed on your sheet. So if you can read along with me as we read this out loud in unison together. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. What we heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many windows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, And a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have so graciously given it to us that we might know your person, that we might know your actions, that we might know your will. Uh, But most of all, that we might know Christ Jesus as our Savior. What a blessing it is. Help us to see that truth today and help us to see how we live in light of it to your glory. We ask this in his wonderful name. Amen. You know, sometimes things start out a certain way, and then as time goes on, they change. I think of a, a week or two ago, uh, Jack had a basketball game, and in this basketball game, they were playing against Flushing, and, and I got there a couple minutes late, and, and it was already, I think, 6-2 to two when I got there. They were losing, and that's a shame, because Jack's team's pretty good. They, they hardly ever lose, and and I couldn't believe what I saw happening after that because a few minutes later they were losing 18-2. to two. 
18 to 2. This is a team that they had already played once and they had beaten by 37 points. And they were losing 18 to 2. And, and I imagine if you were a fan of Flushing at that point, you were thinking things were going pretty well. 18 to 2. How about that? Well, as it would turn out, things didn't keep going that way. Jack's team bounced back and they, they ended up winning the game 52 to 41. So to kind of put that in perspective, it was 18 to 2 in those first five minutes or so. And then for the rest of the game, it was like 23 to 50. You know, that's a pretty drastic change in the way things went. Uh, you know, the 18 points, 23 points, it's about the same that Flushing scored in those two parts of the game. But Jack's team scored two, and then they scored 50. Things change, and sometimes they change quickly. And that's what we see in today's passage here. We see Jesus comes here in the power of the Spirit, we're told. And, and everybody's so pleased at first with what he has to say. Like, wow, isn't this, isn't this fantastic? This, this, is, this is Joe's kid. And, and now he's this, this hotshot preacher guy. That's pretty neat. Pretty neat stuff. They, they were impressed. And, and we're even told here that, that because of his uh, gracious words, they, were, they, were, they marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth, we read here. They marveled at them. Things are going pretty well. And you'd think if, if you're a Jesus fan, which I hope we all are, as we're reading this story, if we've never read it before, we're thinking, wow, this is great. People are receiving him well. And things are going as they should. But then something happens all of a sudden. In verse 23, he says, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. And he speaks of this proverb of physician, heal thyself. Now, now, we need to understand what this proverb actually meant in its context to really have a good idea of what's going on here. And I think what we'll see is that, that Jesus already detected something going on with this group, either supernaturally by, by looking into their hearts in a way that we're not able to do, but he apparently was, or perhaps it was just something from the glances he was getting. Sometimes, you know, you're talking to somebody and they might be saying one thing, but you know what they mean really isn't what they're saying. It's actually sometimes the exact opposite of that. And I don't know which one it is. The text doesn't make it clear, but something happened awfully fast here because they were marveling in one verse, and then he says this in the next verse, we need to understand that, that in that day, medicine wasn't as, as uh, consistent, let's say, as it is today. There was not medical guides that told you what to do in certain situations, and, and doctors were seen, physicians were seen with, with a lot of skepticism in that day, because sometimes things worked, sometimes they didn't. So a lot of times, if if a doctor came to you and said, oh, well, you've got this problem. Here's what you need to do. You need to, you need to drink this, uh, this concoction I have here. Uh, it's not going to taste too good, but, but it'll fix everything. You might say, well, well, doc, you know, that's supposed to be a cough medicine, but, but I look at you and, and you're pretty much coughing all the time. Why, you know, like, you know, you, you wouldn't want to go to a dentist who's, you know, who's missing teeth and so forth and so on. You know, same, same idea. You know, you come to the doctor and you've got a cough. He says, drink this, it'll be fine. But he's coughing the whole time. Hmm. Well, they look at Jesus and, and remember, they, these are a poor people. 
and they're oppressed. He's, he's just read to them from Isaiah 61. And, and he's, he's read in this passage about how he's come to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to bring liberty to the captives. But, but who's this Jesus? He's poor. If we read through his story, we see that he was often oppressed. We see that he had many problems. And so, in one sense, they could be saying, physician, heal thyself, is what he's expecting them to say, because because the things that he's saying he's bringing, it seems, on surface level, that he doesn't have to give. It goes beyond that, though. There's also the sense in which this saying was used to refer to a, a benefactor who might bring blessing to the people that he is benefiting. And so when they say, physician, heal thyself, it's not just pointing to heal yourself as an individual, but to heal your people, take care of your people, bless your people. And perhaps that's kind of the idea and what he's saying there uh, behind that. We're, we're not 100% sure. We can't say for sure, but we know that they did expect the Messiah to come with blessing for the people of Israel. And that makes sense. But, but their understanding of what that blessing would be like goes a little further than just blessing them. It's interesting, when Jesus quotes Isaiah 61, he talks about uh, bringing good news to the poor and binding up the brokenhearted, liber- proclaiming liberty to the captives. Um, pro- and then it says, finally, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You know what the next line is in Isaiah 61? The next line is notably different in its tone. He says that he's come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God. Who do you think they thought that vengeance was coming against? They thought it was coming against the Gentiles. They thought for sure that's the idea here. He's coming and proclaiming liberty to the captives, right? Because Israel was under the oppression of Gentile rule, and that was wrong. It shouldn't be that way. A Messiah will come, and he will release us from this bondage, and that will be the year of the Lord's favor poured out upon us. And the flip side of that coin is he is going to get those Gentiles, and he's going to get them good. That's what they thought. That was the understanding. But but when Jesus comes, he, he doesn't talk about the vengeance, not because it won't be the day of God's vengeance, but because I think they would have so readily misunderstood what is meant by it there. Jesus omits this language, and actually in the language that follows, he suggests that the vengeance of the Lord won't necessarily be against the Gentiles, that in fact the Messiah comes not only for the people of Israel, the inside group, but he comes from the outsiders as well. He comes to bless the Gentiles also. It's not very well received. No prophet ever was received. And so to make this point, Jesus points to two Old Testament prophets. First, he points to the prophet Elijah. And he points to a story that's in 1 Kings. I'm just going to read the story to you real quick, just so you understand what it is that he's talking about. Uh, it's in 1 Kings 17, starting in verse 8. He says, The word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, 
and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel and I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. You see, just to step back from the passage for a second, she's she's saying, we've got enough for one meal. We have no means of getting more after that. This This is the last I have. And what I was doing was literally preparing a last meal for my son and me. We're going to eat this and then, then we're done. That's it. I have nothing left to, to give anything with after that. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day of the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he had spoke to Elijah. Just imagine that. Imagine you're in that situation. You know, you've got enough for one last meal. You know, put it in our current context. You know, you've got maybe, maybe uh, enough for, for like, you've got one little piece of chicken, just a small piece of chicken and, and a piece of bread maybe. And, and you know, you're going you're gonna to cut it in half. It's not even really one serving. It's kind of half a serving, but you split it between yourself and, and your son and, and, and you've got one piece of bread and you cut it in half. And that's, that's what you can do. And it's not really a meal. That's hardly a snack. That's all you have left. And that's what you're going to do. And then somebody comes along and says to you, that's great, do that. But before you do that, give some to me. <laughs> Wait a second. That, that doesn't seem very gracious, very kind. How can he be asking that? He said, but he, but he has a promise that goes with it. He says, if you do that, if you give some to me here, if you, if you trust in the word of God here, I promise that you will not run out of food. And what did the widow do? She trusted. She believed the word of God. And she gave some to him. And sure enough, they didn't run out of food. They continue to eat. It's kind of like the, the miracles of Jesus when he feeds 5,000, isn't it? That there's, there's far more food there than there should be. What made it possible? Well, she believed the promise. And she saw it come true. It's almost as if, you know, sometimes you might hear the phrase, you, you had to see it to believe it. Say for her, she, she had to believe it to see it. Because first, before it could happen, she had to trust that it would. She had to believe and she had to take steps based on that trust. She had to not just say, I do believe it, but she had to act out that belief. Take the steps. And so she did. And she was able to see what she had believed. 
Jesus goes on to talk about uh, Elisha. Well, that was first one was Elijah. This is Elisha. We're a generation later here. We're in 2 Kings. And what we see happens there, I'll, I'll read this passage too. In 2 Kings uh, chapter 5, we read about uh, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothes. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you name in my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away in rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. He was clean. It's interesting. He expected that Elisha would would come say some almost magical incantation over him and big show and call upon the name of God and, and that he'd be able to do it that way. He wanted this show. He thought that that's how it had to be done, just dipping himself in water like this. It didn't make any sense to him. It seemed like foolishness to him. But the ways of God often are like foolishness to us, aren't they? We don't understand what God is doing sometimes. But that's the mystery and the beauty of the cross. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, Paul tells us. We see that God works in truly vexing ways to us because his ways are far higher than our ways. We go through trials and difficulties and and we cry out to God. And frankly, I'll be honest with you. There have been times lately that I've cried out to God. I say, God, why? Why would you do such and such? Why would you do these? Why, would, why are these things happening? They make no sense to me. And God says, 
it is not for you to understand why all things are happening. It is for you to trust in me, even as they happen. It is for you to trust in me, for even through trials, I can do great works in you. Even through difficulties, I can do mighty deeds. In fact, as James tells us, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, I don't know about you, my natural reaction to trials of various kinds is not to count it all joy. It's not a reflex action for me. I wish it were. My reflex action is to get angry, to seek vengeance, to demand justice as if justice is what I really want. Justice is the worst thing we could ever ask for. (laughs) Because because we want justice when justice benefits us. (laughs) We don't want justice so much all those other times, do we? We want grace when it benefits us to get grace and justice when it benefits us to get justice. We should rest in the grace of God, my brothers and sisters, and be pleased to rest in the grace of God. We should count it joy when we face these trials, not because it's enjoyable, not because it's fun, not because it's what we would want for ourselves, but because of the reason James gives us. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We as a church right now are going through a time of trial, aren't we? I mean, I, I'm not surprising anybody when I say that. It's a difficult time in the history of this church. It's a trial. But I believe this with all my heart. That God is bringing this, us through this time of trial for his purposes. Ultimately for his glory. Do I understand exactly what he's doing in this? No. I wouldn't pretend to. Do, do I enjoy the time? Well, it's not my natural reaction. But I need to trust in God. I need to take him at his word and believe that he is doing a work. That he is producing in us steadfastness as we cling to him even in the midst of difficulties. That we look to him in faith. That's really what it's all about at the end, isn't it? It's about faith. That's what Jesus was calling Nazareth to. He was calling them to faith. Because he he shares this example of Elijah and Elisha. And, And he shares those examples. He's saying these people that they came to needed to believe. They needed to trust. Even when all the circumstances looked like that wasn't the right thing to do. The widow, it wouldn't seem, should give away some of her food. Naaman, it wouldn't seem, should just go dip himself in the water of the, you know, of the river there. It, surely, that, that can't be all there is to it. It doesn't make any sense. And yet, when they trusted God, God blessed them through that trust. That wasn't the only thing he was telling them, though. He was telling them that they needed to trust God. They needed to trust God for sure. They needed to have faith. But he was also chiding them, if ever so gently, 
or perhaps not even gently. Because he knew their hearts. He knew their hearts were incredibly inward focused. You see, they, they thought that the Messiah was coming for them and he was going to get those Gentiles and take care of them, right? And, and they very much had a good guys, bad guys mentality. And, and what made you a good guy? Well, you're here with me and that's what makes you a good guy. And what makes you a bad guy? Well, you're not with me, right? You're on the other side. So, so good guys, bad guys. Very simple. Agree with me, you're a good guy. Disagree with me, you're a bad guy. And God, of course, is going to get the bad guys, so you better be with me. That's essentially what their attitude was. But Jesus comes saying, no. It's not that you're the good guys and they're the bad guys. I mean, if we're going to be perfectly honest, you're all bad guys. There are no good guys. There's, there's none that are good except God. And Christ Jesus comes as the perfect man, the only one who is good. And he offers up himself, not just for the Jews, but for all who would call on him, for any who would believe. Romans 1 tells us that I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes? Anyone. He's saying, get rid of this mentality that says you're the good guys and they're the bad guys. The gospel is for everyone. Whoever would believe, whoever would call upon the Lord, there is salvation for them. And so it tears down that wall. And that's the way it all, always had been. That for a long, long time, the Jews had thought in terms of Jews, good guys, Gentiles, bad guys. But if we go all the way back to Abraham, the calling of Abraham in Genesis 12, we read that God calls him and says in verse 3 of chapter 12 of the book of Genesis, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. He doesn't say, in you, there will be a great blessing for your family. He says, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This blessing will reach out to all peoples. He's already at that point tearing down the walls between the inside crew and the outside crew. He said, I am blessing you that you might be a blessing. And that needs to be our mindset. We need to receive the blessings of God joyfully and and excitedly but not so that we might hoard those blessings but that we might use those blessings to bless other people and so we need to have a mindset that doesn't just say what what comes what whatever blessings are poured out in this sanctuary in this building in this body we rejoice and we we get excited just for us No, we need to use those blessings to bless other people. We want to be a blessing to our community. We want to be a blessing to to our country, to the world. We really want to. And that's why we've talked so much about missions during these Wednesday night services. That's what we're talking about doing, is being a blessing to the world, reaching out to other people, other people that we would never see, that we would never know. But we long for them to know the joy that we have. We want them to know the blessing that we've been blessed by. And so we share that with them. We long to see that wall torn down between the insiders and the outsiders. We want to take that good news to all who would receive it, for it is good news for those who believe. 
and those who receive it. Now the fact of the matter was that Jesus was not too popular when he said these things. John put it this way in John 1. He says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. I don't know that John was specifically thinking of this incident, but he very well could have, because that's what happens. His own did not receive him, and we see that they rose up and drove him out of town, took him to the cliff, and the idea is they're going to throw him off the cliff. Uh, they're, they're going to kill him. Some scholars say that that was actually like the, the proper way to stone somebody was to throw them off the cliff and then bury them in the stones underneath by throwing them down on them. That's what they want to do. They want to kill him for what he's saying. That's how angry they are. They're so angry at him. It's easy to become angry like that, isn't it? It's easy to be angry, especially when somebody says something you don't like or does something you don't like. It's very easy to become angry. And and I'll be honest with you, there's probably legitimate reasons to be angry for all of us. I'm sure we've all had somebody say something or do something to us that uh, is really was wrong and you just can't get past it. But the reality is if we turn that spotlight around on ourselves, it's pretty easy for us to find places where we've wronged people too, isn't it? It's easy for us to find places where we have not been as kind or as gracious or as loving as we ought to have been. And we are quick to desire that that grace is extended to us. And so we must be quick to extend grace to others. We look at this passage and we, we see some things. We see that Jesus is viewed as kind of the local guy, right? He's just the guy that, down the street, Joe's kid. And so... They have a hard time getting past that, I think. They have a hard time getting past the familiarity of Jesus. I fear that that happens to us, too. You know, we come to church every Sunday, and we talk about Jesus, and we sing about Jesus, and we come up here on a Wednesday night, maybe, or we're involved. We we can get too familiar with Jesus, I think, sometimes. We need to be careful not to do that. I mean, we want to be very close to him, so familiar with him that we walk with him every day, but... But we need to make sure he's not just kind of the, the guy we go to for the spiritual blessing, that he's not just the, the guy we want to do the miracle for us. But he's our friend and our brother and most of all our Savior, the King of the world to whom all honor is due. And we should be a church that longs to see his glory made manifest throughout our community, and throughout the world. That's my prayer, that's my hope, that we would be a church that truly longs for that, that longs for that more than anything else, that we long for his glory to be made manifest far more than our own. And so we, we long for revival to break out. We long for revival to break out in Flint, Michigan, in Genesee County. Wouldn't that be wonderful if, if Genesee County just had this incredible revival? That'd be so awesome. But here's my question for you. Would you be just as excited? I mean, one possibility is revival breaks out and the epicenter of that revival is right here where I'm standing. 
Wouldn't that be awesome? You know, five years from now, we've got five services every Sunday morning, packing out the place. There's 2,000 people coming here, and, and it's just, I mean, just like this biblical revival that we can't even, can't even imagine. It's just the power of God has so clearly swept through here. Wouldn't that be awesome? That would be really neat. I'd be really excited if that happened. And I think you would be too. Here's my question. Would you be just as excited if that happened at the church down the street? And we had 47 people here. Would you be just as excited? My first instinct is to say no. Honestly. But that's wrong. I should be just as excited, right? Because my mindset isn't, I want Calvary to look good. I want Pete to look good. It needs to be, I want God to look good. And so if his glory is made manifest, that's all I should care about. It doesn't matter if it happens here at another church or what it looks like. We need to have a bigger picture than just Calvary. We need to think outside the context of our four walls. We need to think about the kingdom of God. That's what we need to think about. And we as a church want to do whatever we can to benefit the kingdom of God and to make his glory known throughout the world. But it needs to not be for our good, but for his. Let that be our mindset. Let us be the type of people who offer the kind of sacrifices that God says he wants The sacrifices of God, Psalm 51 tells us, are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Let that be our mindset, our heart. A spirit that realizes our own frailty, our own weakness, that comes humbly before God and humbly before one another. Not seeking to exalt us, but seeking to exalt God the God who has told us what is good and what the Lord requires of us, to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. Let us pray. Our Lord, I do pray right now, and I hope that all are praying with me that we would be that kind of church a church that looks to be a blessing to others, to share the blessings that you have so graciously poured out to us, to be gracious to others, to forgive others as we have been forgiven, to love others with a love that is completely inexplicable by the world standards, but a love that makes sense only in light of the cross. Let that be the kind of love that exists here, not just for one another, but even for those who are not in our midst, for those who we perceive to have wronged us, for those who we perceive to have been against us. Let us show that kind of love, for that is the kind of love that you have shown for us, that though we were enemies, Christ died for us. Let us love one another for him. We ask this in his name.